You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Uh, as we talk about depression or anxiety or I guess really any mental health issue, um, there is power in knowing your own, know, knowing yourself, right, and and getting a better insight into who you are. Many times when people will come see me, I'll just casually ask, uh, you know, do you think you're depressed? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. And then I ask, have you done anything about it? Have you sought counseling? Have you Have you talked to a doctor about it? Most of the times, no, no. Um, why? And it makes sense, though, right? Because we we don't want to do these changes. We don't want to be pegged as broken. We don't want to uh, rely on someone else to help us. We think we're going to be able to dig ourselves out of it. One of the problems with depression, though, is sometimes – you're already behind, and it might just be chemically. It might be just situationally. Your brain is just behind in, in its ability to make the right decisions in the right timing, in the right way, in the right space. So sometimes it might help to just have an external intervention, and that intervention might be um, some antidepressants for a while, or it might be uh, some cognitive therapy um, and talk therapy for a while. Whatever it is, uh, getting a little boost, a little help is going to help one way or another because it's going to give you a chance to shift how you think about it, how you feel about it. But don't wait, We, we um, especially if you've seen the pattern over and over and over. One of the best ways I've ever found to know if you need help is if it's starting to seriously impact your life, if it impacts your interaction with your children and your family, if you're starting to medicate, um, if you're starting to pull yourself away from everyone else, or if you're having aggressive outbursts, right? So if all of these things are starting to happen and it's impacting your life more overtly, more obviously, then it's time to do something. And the sooner you can do it, the better. Um, and I guess what I would do is just seek out somebody you know. And the other reason I would do it is because if you can have this happen to you, it's very likely your children could have it happen to them. And our kids need to see that we are doing what we can with our own mental health issues so that we can hand down these lessons, these learnings, these teachings to the next generation so they can handle their DNA. They can handle their genetics. We hand these traditions down, uh, whether it's a chemical tradition, whether it's a psychological tradition, whether it's abuse, we hand these down to the next generation. So the more we take on learning how to handle it and fix it, the better off we all are. It might very well be the greatest gift you can hand your children is a playbook, a tools book, a tool set for how to manage your mental health issues. Uh, We'll wrap it up with a quote from Thomas Edison, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. Giving up on the issue and not trying to solve it, not trying to ever deal with it, not trying to talk about it, makes total sense, right, when you're depressed. The problem is it doesn't make any progress. And all we need is a little bit of progress today on it, a little bit more understanding, a little bit uh, of, of solutions that work, and we can eventually build a way, a, a literally, literally a ladder out of our depression or our mental health issues. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody would like to motivate, move, influence, somehow 
influence another person, wouldn't you? And you want to. I mean, you need to. These are your kids. These are the people you love. These are the people that uh, you've been given a responsibility or a stewardship over, like your family. How powerful would it be if you could effectively just move them? Not to – I mean, I, I can get anybody to move if I make enough noise, right? I can scare you. I can intimidate you. I can – I can do so many things to get you to do what I want you to do. The problem with it is I also have to learn to motivate you in a way today that I can still motivate you tomorrow. And the problem with some of our methods of motivating another human being is we do it at the we, – we actually do it and rob from tomorrow. Um, for example, if I use force and fear and coercion to to motivate my children – I mean, I guess it works, but eventually my kids will be bigger than me. They'll be stronger than me. They will be taller than me, and my influence will evaporate. My power will be gone because they won't respect me. They won't honor me as a parent. They just won't be there for me. So ask yourself about how you choose to motivate, how you choose to inspire or influence your family or your friends, your neighbors. Are you doing it in a way that actually is additive, that that makes it so it's easier to be more powerful tomorrow and even more powerful the next day? Because how you choose to influence them in every moment starts to create uh, more power down the road. The ba- the best way to do that would probably be right to be to be um, to be more principled in how you try to influence. A couple rules I give, though, if we, if you want to quietly motivate others. First rule is a very basic rule. You must first be influenced by them. Before walking in thinking you know what someone needs, wouldn't it make more sense to find out what they need? One of the, the things I do a lot when I do public speaking um, or just you know events or whatever, I always like to open it up to Whatever the topic is, if we're talking about relationships, I would just, to the group, say, what makes relationships so difficult? And by just opening it up, you'll start to have hands go up. And as you start taking hands and start hearing what they're saying, I've noticed that many times just what they say, and sometimes I'll write it down on a board, sometimes I'll just go with what we're talking about, but I start to actually have my entire speech written for me. Okay, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about this. But be influenced. And the more open you are to being influenced by somebody, they then start to trust you, right? They start to actually – they start to engage you more because you are – you're actually willing to get into them first before just like laying down the law. Another rule is simply um, when you're listening to them and open to what they're doing, listen for what they're excited about. Listen for what passion they are bringing to the equation. One of the most powerful ways I found to motivate somebody is to allow them to just kind of be what they like to be. Let them go where they want to go with their, uh, with their sports, with their athletics, with their extracurricular. Many times as parents, we just want our kids to be a football player because we were a football player. But they come out and they, they're an artist and they want to be artistic and they really are into drawing. And uh, but you're like drawing isn't football and you really got to study and I don't know. Can you just allow people to be what they want to be? And you'll find that out when you listen to them. Um, Another uh, powerful way to influence, I think, people is to give them role models of of people that that they might kind of naturally lean toward, people they might be interested in, and let those role models uh, kind of be their guide. 
find if somebody really loves basketball, for example, go find them a prototype. Go find them somebody that you know came from circumstances like you're coming from, and help them find a role model. Help them find uh, even an NBA star that is similar to them, came from a similar background. Go learn their story. Go find out how they made it pro. Go find out about their work ethic. And let kind of a prototype um, be there for them, something that can show them that they can do this too. Sometimes the most motivating thing that can get anybody out of a, a hole is simply to know that someone else has done it. And you, you can be very powerful about that. Another thing that's really powerful, a way to influence is be their backer, right? Be the person behind their passion and help them get there. Put your money down to – Get them to art classes, drive them to art classes, talk about their art, show their art, give their art away, brag about their art, do whatever you can to highlight what they really do like, what they really are passionate about. Just some basic ideas, right, to influence another person and and to motivate them, especially as we see more and more of our children. We wonder, are they motivated at all? Is Are they doing anything in there? They don't seem to move off the couch anymore, but they will. If you'll dig into them, understand them, find what they're good at, find what they like, and then partner with them. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Compared to the scientific model, there really are a lot of people that question science. And, I mean, science has let us down a few times, right? I mean, uh, some past wrong science includes dinosaurs died from a volcano. Uh, There's a lot of genetic differences between the races. Tobacco is good for you. There are only nine planets. There's only one solar system, and water only exists on the Earth. There's some theories that have been uh, disproven, and yet um, we, we so need science, and we also, I think, need other, other intuitive theories where we use our intuition to better understand something that science maybe can't explain to you. Um, other issues like faith and, and an issue of hope. And finding hope or just what creates a miracle um, in your eyes? Does everything have to be explained by science? Also, I've just noticed how sometimes science can let you down. I have someone close to me who has who's had uh, back pain, went in, got some shots in their back, and they just didn't work. And they were in a lot of pain. And they actually believed, based on what doctors were telling them, that, yeah, their their back's going to be messed up forever and they're probably going to degenerate and then they're just going to be in a wheelchair and slowly their life is just going to disintegrate. And then they showed those exact same images to another doctor and another do- – actually, two other doctors and two other doctors are like, what? No. No, I mean, that's normal. You're You're normal. That's normal degeneration for your age. So, yeah, the shots just weren't working. What kind of shot was it? What did they do? Where did they put the shot? Oh, no, you need this kind of shot. And then that little information from another scientist helped that patient go clarify for their doctor what else could be going on. And then that person went in and had the shot where they needed the shot, and it worked like a charm. Ah, science. Isn't it great? But science impacts our head. It impacts our minds. It impacts our belief system, which is why at some point we might want to trust some of our intuition at times. We might want to trust some of our inspiration. When we get light or a a thought in our mind, 
How many times have you ever gotten up in the morning? I had this happen to me the other day. I just wake up and there's this thought in my mind. And then I go research that thought and bada boom, bada bing. I've got an answer to an issue or a riddle that I've been battling with for months. I've got answers. And I believe there are answers out there for everybody. But you have to be willing to look more than just, you know, at your phone and more than just what you were taught once. Dig deeper. How many times has somebody just eliminated a theory or, you know, a religious belief simply because they uh, they just don't believe it, but they haven't studied it? They haven't evaluated it. They haven't worked on it. They haven't prayed about it, but they're going to eliminate the idea. And by the way, feel incredibly confident in eliminating it. One of my rules is if you have incredible confidence to the point of arrogance about an idea, you probably don't have the right idea. <laughs> because th- what I have found, the ideas that, to me that I, I have received and know most boldly and strongly don't make me more arrogant. They actually make me more humble. When you know truth, it humbles you. It's not something that should make you arrogant. Arrogance sets set you up for the fall, right? Pride will set you up for the fall. So a little coach's corner for you, just helping you see that there's other thoughts out there and there's other thoughts inside of you that are coming from, I believe, a different source, a higher source, a better source, a more accurate source, a source maybe that's more aligned to you and what you need to bring to this world. And man, if all of us could connect into that source, woo, look out. We could create something powerful. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. GMO, or genetically modified organisms, help grow crops to decrease the chance of crop failure and increase the yield of produce. Many parents, however, are concerned that this seemingly unnatural type of food is now entering their, uh, you know, their storage areas and as well as their kids' bellies. Is GMO, are GMO crops actually unsafe to eat? Here to speak with us is Dr. Fred Gould, professor of entomology at North Carolina State University. Help us uh, kind of sort through the GMO dilemma. Uh, Dr. Gould, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be with you. Talk to us about about GMO. I mean, I know that there's been a, a massive um, you know, organization and study committee researching GMO to see if they're safe, uh, but there's a lot of people that just don't trust them. Yeah, yeah. So let me tell you just a little bit about our study. Um, So I was the chair of a committee of 20 professionals, all the way from molecular geneticists to sociologists and economists and food scientists, sort of looking into this safety issue. And, you know, there, there have been so many studies on this, and it really is this question about trust. And a lot of people think, well, all these studies have been done by the industry, and, well, they're the ones who gave us tobacco and gave us mm. all sorts of things. So how do I trust them? So as a group, we went back and tried to sort of look at everything with fresh eyes. And I don't want to go on forever, but just to say that we uh, invited 
to our committee a whole bunch of the most uh, famous or well-known critics of GMO safety mm. and listen to them, right? So we had them come and talk to us and voice their concerns. And we took this all very seriously. And, you know, it took us two years to write a 400-page report on all of these aspects. Food safety was one major one. And we looked through all of the studies as carefully as possible and um, put those in, into our report. That's a great way to do this. Now, and you were doing this as, uh, as a university, or you were doing it for the government? Well, so the National Academy of Sciences is a body of you know, scientifically well-known scientists who um, work with the U.S. government. They're sort of separate from the government, but work to advise the government on scientific issues. That's, and that was that was the job. team. Yeah. Most most of the people were academics who were on the committee. And and two to bring in the critics, I think is is really important. Um, talk to us, I guess, just for the average person who doesn't know or has not heard of a genetically modified organism. Wh- what is it? Why are we genetically modifying anything? And um, and then what uh, what are, what were the concerns and what were, what were the outcomes? Yeah. Okay. Very good. So. I think people know that, you know, when they eat almost anything that they get in the supermarket, it has been genetically modified by conventional breeding. You know, we know that uh, in Mexico where maize or corn was developed, the earliest uh, settlers in Mexico didn't have, you know, sweet corn like we have today. It was developed, but it was developed. Uh, based on breeding or uh, sort of what would be considered a natural method of farmers saving mm. the best seed that tasted the best and gave the highest yields. Well, that's been going on for a long time, and big companies like Pioneer have been doing it just maybe more efficiently. But recently, it's become possible to move genes around from one species to another that wouldn't normally you know, mate and reproduce. And so there were certain things about some crops, uh, for example, uh, corn, I guess, it would be a good one, where there were some insects that feed on this corn that caused a lot of damage. And people typically try to breed the crops to be resistant to those insects, but they couldn't find the genes within the, all the maize and corn varieties available that would let them resist these insect pests. Hmm. So the researchers found a gene from a bacteria that um, would resist that insect pest, and they moved that gene into the corn plant. And that is called transgenic or genetically engineered. Transgenic because you're moving a gene, transferring it from one species to another. And that was so that is the big difference. And the biggest difference, which is why an entomologist is talking to us, is it was mainly for the the bugs to control the pests from getting in and destroying the crop. Yeah. So there are two major traits. You know, there's a lot of talk about this, but there are two major traits that have been put into the crops. One of them is uh, to control the insect pests, and the other is to make the crop. Uh, be able to withstand the use of herbicides that kill the weeds. So there are some broad-spectrum herbicides, you know, that kill plants, hmm. like uh, Roundup that's called glyphosate, right? Yeah. And if you sprayed that on a field, you'd kill all the weeds, but you'd kill your crop. 
So they found some genes that would make the crop be able to tolerate that herbicide, and that's the second trait that's been widely used. And yet this has been done since the earliest days of, uh, of man is, you know, trying to create a better and better crop. Um, people are just more affected by it now because it's, I guess, being done by major corporations in labs, and it's also it's changing the genetic you know, makeup of the yeah, plant. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of concerns. You know, that's why we listen to people who had concerns. And, you know, some people's concerns are, well, gee, you're, you know, inserting this gene into this random place in the genome. You know, could you be mm. uh, changing the composition of the plant in ways that you don't know? You know, could you, you know, and, and would you as a company look at that carefully enough? So that's the kind of studies that we were looking at is to, you know, we've had 20 years of experience with these crops. In the United States, people have been eating these crops since 1996. Okay. So that's really 20 years. And so we looked at all the data that was available that, you know, we could get our hands on. And in terms of food safety, you know, that was over 300 studies. And um, we looked at all of this um, in terms of, you know, what were these studies and what do they prove? And uh, if I could go on. Please, yeah, what did you find out? There, there were four different kinds of studies. You know, one is the typical one where you get a mouse or a rat and you feed them, you know, high amounts of these, the corn or the soybeans that's been genetically engineered and see if there are any uh, observable problems. There had been a couple of studies that seemed to show an effect on health, but when we looked at those studies carefully, we found that they were just very preliminary, and the statistics didn't really show a major effect. Mm. So, but we went back to a lot of the studies, and we found that they didn't show any real effects, but they could have been performed you know, somewhat better. But then we went on to look at other studies, for example, just really looking at everything we knew about the composition based on uh, biochemical studies of the plants, and we didn't see any difference. And then uh, we also looked at animal health. So, you know, there's places like Purdue Farms that grow lots of chickens, right? Yeah. And for them to make a profit, or the biggest profit possible, they want to be able to feed as little feed, as little corn or soybeans to their chickens as possible to get out a big chicken that they could sell in the store. So if there was something wrong with the genetically modified grain that was being sold, they would notice even a half a percent decrease in the efficiency Hmm. of converting that into chicken. So we looked at the data on that, and we didn't see any evidence that there was any effect. And then finally, we compared people in the United States and Canada who've been eating these crops to people in England and the European Union who haven't been to see if there were any evidence that there was there were more health problems developing in the countries where people were eating those crops and again we didn't find any evidence so we took all of this you know and put that in the report but one thing that we did that's not really typical is if you go to the website and i think i gave you the information all somebody has to type in is ge crops national academy of sciences and you'll find that report and in the web page we go through every reference we use, and we put down the affiliation of the person who led the study. Mm. So you could read the report and 
see if a study that we quote was done by somebody from industry or was funded by industry or it was done by academics or, or who was doing the study. So uh, our whole approach was to make our own conclusions, but to make it accessible so that a normal citizen could go in and look at what we concluded and see if they agreed with what we concluded. You're doing everything you can, it sounds like, to be thorough and transparent, because I I guess this is the issue too, right, is the industry – uh, we've heard the issues of Coca-Cola, you know, paying for their yep. research. We've heard right. the, the tobacco and all of that. And so really, um, I, I didn't know anything about this until I did a, a speech for about 400 farmers and realized what a big impact this makes in their life. Um, so, so really, you're not just trying to make more money for Purdue Farms. You're, you're, you're trying to make sure – our our food sources are safe and healthy, yet maximized to eliminate pests and to maximize the yield, right? Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. And and to be careful, you know, in terms of um, the kinds of studies we use and also look towards the future. You know, so we can say that what we have on the market right now, these two traits appear to be safe. Um, you know, I mean, we can't say that it's going you know, to, not take off one year off your life or add a year to your life, right? Because you can't say that about anything. I it's mean, just after a twenty-year study, right? How much salt are you supposed to? Do? Yeah, so these tiny effects we can't talk about. But um, a major thing is to ask: Well, there may be some crops coming down the line in the future hmm. that would have much bigger changes, and what are those going to look like? But and how are they going to affect you? So we have quite a bit of the report is on that as well. And some of the health, I guess, issues. Um, are, are simply with GMO, it, it's simply the fact that you're using, you, you have to use less herbicide as well, right? I mean, okay, if, if so they can hold up against that. Point here. You know, when we had all the critics come in, and as well as, as we also had all the companies come in, not all, but we had some of the largest companies and, and some smaller companies come in who were doing this kind of genetic engineering. And so, some people will say, oh, herbicide use is lower than it used to be, and others will say it's higher than it used to be. And you go into the data, and you can see, you know, depending on how you slice the bread, you know, <laughs> you get a different kind of answer. But we looked at that pretty carefully, and we decided that the way people do this is pounds of herbicide used. And when we looked at the information more carefully, we realized that's a terrible measure, because... <laughs> If you put on 10 pounds of a pretty safe herbicide versus one pound of an unsafe herbicide, right? right? So it's not, you know, apples and oranges kind of thing. So I think that from our perspective, uh, everything we could look at didn't show any major changes in terms of environmental effects of these herbicides. You know, like the, the biodiversity on a farm was not uh, really significantly impacted by the changes from the conventional crops Mm. to the genetically engineered ones for the herbicides. For the insect-resistant crops, since you use less broad-spectrum insecticides that kill just about everything in their path, right, all the insects, we saw that by using the genetically engineered crops, you had more diversity of insects in your fields, Mm. typically at least. So that's, Which I assume uh, is healthier, thing. yeah, better. Yeah, 
Oh, interesting. Okay, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Fred Gould, and uh, he's walking us through just kind of the the ABCs of uh, GMO, genetically modified organisms or genetic engineering. And uh, he's a professor of entomology at North Carolina State University, is talking about the committee that he chaired that put together probably one of the best uh, overviews and understanding and understandings around GMO. Powerful resource, folks. We're, we're trying to just cut through the debate, get some of the facts out there, and uh, then you can decide. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Are you worried about your food having genetically modified organisms? Are you worried about, you know, the that really nice steak you ate last night being fed by a G with a GMO crop? <laughs> or the chicken that you love to eat from Purdue Farms? It's a it's a concern, right? This is our food. This is this is what's going to make us or break us. And uh, we have all of this science. We have all this technology. Are we supposed to be using the technology to modify the genetic you know, makeup of our food? Is that what we should be doing? Well, uh, our guest today is a lead researcher on a committee with the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. And uh, he also uh, serves on the National Research Center's Board on Agriculture and Natural Resources. He studies ecology and genetics of pests and to improve food production and human environmental health. Dr. Fred Gould is his name, professor of entomology at North Carolina State University. Dr. Gould, again, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, great. Talk to me about, um, because, I mean, I didn't even hear you know, anything about, you know, food allergies, wheat allergies, all of these different kind of allergies that keep coming out, gluten issues. And in my back of my head, I just I think it's got to be all this genetically engineered stuff that's creating this chaos in your research with your committee. As you've gone through all of the research around GMOs, is is that what's causing some of this? I mean, is there any connection to all of these other health issues that are coming up? Right. Well, that, that's a good question. All right. So I'll start with the wheat issue and um, gluten and all of that. Um, what most people don't realize is there is no genetically engineered wheat uh, grown commercially in the United States. Hmm. So when you get bread, you're getting just regular old wheat. Just regular old now, wheat, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it certainly has been bred, uh, you know, by conventional methods, the same way it's been done for, you know, centuries in a way. Um, and people have uh, bread wheat to have higher and lower gluten. You know, if, if you're uh, developing a variety uh, to make bread, you might want higher gluten. You know, if you're making something else, you might have lower gluten in it. So gluten has been, uh, you know, content has been changed by conventional breeding, but there is no GMO wheat in the U.S., um, the, now, there, you know, the other kinds of things, you know, the basic crops in the U.S. that have been engineered are uh, cotton 
and corn and soybean. And there are a few other things that have been, so uh, papaya in Hawaii um, and uh, some uh, varieties of squash um, that are resistant to viruses, That, as well as in the uh, case of the papaya. Um, nobody has noticed any uh, changes that, sh- you know, are expected to cause allergies. Um, and people have done a lot of tests on the transgenics, you know, the corn, cotton, and uh, soybean, um, just to see if those genes that they put in could cause allergic effects. Mm. You know, testing for food allergies is very difficult, and we were very careful in our report to indicate that. But all the evidence to date uh, does not show any change um, in the allergic uh, qualities of those plants. And we also looked at, you know, again, I mentioned the, the Canadian and U.S. people compared to those in England and the EU in terms of food allergies over time to see if food allergies had increased at a different rate in the U.S. than they had in the uh, EU and and in uh, England, and and we didn't see any trend like that. Hmm. And again, this is only 20 years of testing, really, right? Right. But, I mean, that's Uh, something. You say only 20 years of testing, or wow, 20 years of testing. 20 years of testing, exactly. is it is it um, is it producing the yield the, and increasing the yields for the farmers? Are they able to get more out of their yeah. crop out of their field? Well, boy, that's a good question. So you know, one of the critics who came to our committee in the beginning, um, you know, brought out the fact that he had done an independent study and didn't see any increases in yield due to the genetic engineering. So we went into that pretty deeply and looked at the United States Department of Agriculture data. Mm-hmm. And when we looked at it, you know, yields have been increasing over time for a long time. And we looked at data from the 1980s until now, and it's 1996 when the genetically engineered crops came in, and some people were talking about how we needed this to feed the world, and it would increase yields faster. And we didn't see any evidence of that. So we had to agree with that critic that, we, you know, there weren't any strong evidence that, uh, genetic engineering was increasing the rate at which crop yields increased. Huh. So, so it, and you know there was a recent New York Times article, uh, you know, about that same topic, showing that in Europe uh, yields were increasing also. Hmm. If you look at wheat in the United States, which I just mentioned is not genetically engineered, it's been increasing in yield over time too. So, it's not as if without genetic engineering, uh, because of climate change or something else, things would have gotten slower. It's probably just that the kind of traits that have been developed weren't, weren't really developed to really just increase yield dramatically. Does, that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future, but right. it hasn't happened yet. How does this now, impact... In developing the, countries yeah. where crops were devastated by insect pests, of course, the mm. ones that were resistant to them had increased yield. So it's we're talking mostly about the U.S. here. Oh, I didn't think about that too. But just the exporting of these of the seeds that are GMO, um, and how that could impact certain countries, certain third world countries, and their ability to to maximize their yields and minimize yeah. their pest issues. Right. Powerful. What What about um, what is this doing day in and day out? To the farmer, the the average American farmer, how does GMO benefit them? Um, does it or or hurt them? 
Yeah, boy, uh, that's, you know, it sounds like a simple question. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty tough one, you know, in a way, because, of course, in the short term, um, you know, if you don't have to spray as many insecticides, um, you know, you make, you know, you can make a, a larger profit given that you don't pay so much for the seeds. And, of course, the seeds that are genetically engineered cost more than the others. But the economic analyses have shown that there are, are profits to be made for those farmers and that the use of the herbicide also uh, makes the farming practice simpler in that you you know don't have to be out there all the time scouting for weeds and that um, you probably don't have to use your tractor and go over the field as much you can have no-till and what that leads to is of course that a farmer can farm at a larger scale hmm. and so you know there are a lot of complications uh, of course if you produce too much corn the price of corn goes down as we've seen recently and then that can eat into the farmer's profits. So we all know that, you know, for farmers, uh, the economics are complicated. And, you know, sometimes the farmers in North Carolina will wish for a bad year for the Florida farmers so there won't be so many potatoes around at a certain time of the year so they can get a higher price on them. Right. So if we start producing a lot, there are a lot of complicated economic factors that go in. So there's not a simple answer hmm. on that. Does is it is it decreasing our overall food price? Is GMO benefiting uh, us financially? Yeah, that's yeah, same problem. Yeah. I mean, that one's a, also. I don't know of anyone who has uh, really felt like they could prove that food prices have gone down. But you know, if you think about the price of corn chips, and you think, okay, how much of that price is due to a change in the price of the corn itself? versus all the processing, all the marketing, all the transportation, the price of the corn is, is a small part of that. So a small change in the price of corn is unlikely to have a big, you know, have any kind of major effect on the price hmm. of your corn chips. Because one of the things that's in the back of my head is, you know, major organizations, corporations put a lot of money behind this, and then they become you know, the major broker of our food industry. And I wonder if, is that a problem where genetically engineered uh, crops, it's not something the average farmer is doing, you know, in his own barn. It's something, right, right, so right. do we need to worry about major yeah. corporations being the ones that now are in charge of our food, you know, process? Well, boy, I'll tell you, that's something that a lot of people are concerned about and economists, um, are struggling with this issue because uh, there were basically six major corporations that you know are doing the genetic engineering right now, and they s swap traits with each other and, and patent uh, licensing and, and such. Um, but those six are in there are a lot of merger talks, and it may reduce to three. Mm. So when you think about three corporations having a lot of control, not all control, but a lot of control on the seed system, uh, that's something that economists have to work on in terms of, you know, does that spur more innovation because they're bigger, or does that lead to less competition because there are fewer? So um, that's something I could certainly see citizens uh, struggling with. Mm. Uh, years ago, we had lots and lots of independent um, corn breeders. Uh, a lot of it was done in the public in universities like North Carolina State University. But more and more of that is going to the private sector now. Yeah, it seems like it would have been a university kind of focus, area by area, uh, crop yeah. by crop. Right. What, um, 
the other thing that worries me is just simply the fact that we ha- we live in an ecosystem. It's the system's highly complex, and we introduce something now. I always just think of the butterfly effect that you know in a hundred years could do something else. Um, you know, five hundred miles away. What right. what what is the impact of uh, to the ecosystem? Are we are we you were saying that we're seeing more and more and different types of of animal or bug life um, in our on our farms again. Yeah. Is it healthy? Is it are, are well, we are yeah, we playing with lightning? It looks it looks like it's pretty healthy in those ways, but of course you know people uh, talk about the monarch butterfly, right? Yeah. and the fact that the herbicides now are becoming um, more effective and killing off the milkweed, which is what the monarch butterflies as as caterpillars feed on. So, you know, could that be leading to the demise of the monarch butterfly? You know, we looked into this, you know, pretty carefully, and uh, the results are pretty ambivalent as to whether this is having any impact or not, but more studies are being done. And the good thing there is that uh, companies and environmentalists are getting together to work together to study this problem. So, of course, there are always problems coming up. But, you know, one thing I say to people sometimes is, you know, you're worrying about the impact of these crops, these single genes on sometimes single species. But in the meantime, we're cutting down rainforests and other right. forests, you know. So where should we be putting our efforts? Uh, you know, these are all complicated questions, and I think it's a great sort of area for high school students and college students to start debating these issues. And uh, we think that our report is one resource they could use in in trying to think about these things as opposed to just going to the Internet to see what somebody has said about it. No, I, th- I think that's exactly right. And the mere fact that we're having the conversation, um, I-, I think, just informs people, lets everybody not just work out of fear and out of panic, but um, out of uh, some education. Again, if they want to get to your research study, uh, I found it um, genetic- genetically engineered crops. Is that the study experiences and prospects? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So tell everybody again how to get there. Just type in GE two letters, GE, Crops, National Academy of Sciences. And you'll probably wind up on that page. There you go. What would you say, just as we wrap up, uh, you know, your kids, your grandkids, great-grandkids, what do you think about GMO for your family, your generation? We safe? We good? Well, I, I think that we always need citizen participation. You know, one of the things we saw in doing our report is that getting the critics involved, doing all of this, this is what democracy is about, and this is how democracy works. You know, we had uh, some researchers come from Turkey to visit our school and from Japan. Japan was a very interesting example of journalists from there hearing about our report and thinking, wow, you know, in Japan, the scientists would never think of bringing uh, citizens in or critics in to talk. They want to just do their technical analysis and tell people what's happening. And, you know, they saw it as a change because after Fukushima, you know, the yeah. nuclear thing, people lost trust in the government's handling of that because, they, you know, there was sort of a black box. Everybody said, oh, it's safe, it's safe. But people want to know more. And I think that in the future, we'll have a better society if we do allow uh, for more of this kind of discussion. 
Uh, some people are worried about that because people will not stick to the facts. And, you know, you've got to stick to, you know, you've got to look at what the facts are. But there are different values that people have and different concerns. No, so I, I think, think you're right. We do bail us. Oh, it's it's a perfect timing too. I think because it's a, I think it's a wonderful model and uh, example for how we could go about a lot of other issues from climate, you know, climate issues to changing, you know, Obamacare and our healthcare management. Let's bring in the let's bring in everybody and have real conversations and uh, get people we trust that can that can just kind of sort through it all. Interesting stuff, folks. Information. It doesn't harm. It can help. Stick with us. Uh, thank you, Dr. Fred Gold, again, from uh, entom- Professor of Entomology at North Carolina State University for your great research. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up this uh, first hour of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Um, Again, remember, you live in a society where people are constantly marketing to you, at you. They need your pocketbook. And so there's also misinformation. We've had a lot in the last election talking about fake news and uh, how you can just spread so much so many lies through a fake news article that you just push through Facebook, post to all your friends. And I'm afraid GMO may become part of that. Again, I get it. You're genetically messing with our food source. I get it. I get it. One thing, though, is the farmers have always been doing it and always been doing it to some degree. Now, sure, they haven't been changing the genetic, you know, makeup of your corn, but they've always been playing with it. And then you bring in the herbicides, you bring in everything else that's going on. It's a highly complicated system. And Dr. Gould has a great point where he says, let's just open up the discussion and let's allow everybody's voice to be heard. And let's kind of, let's try to go on the facts, not on the frenzy. To me, it's a great model for all of us. Let in more truth, let in more information, let in the critics and substantiate what we can. Remember, you're going to be marketed on either side, go GMO or anti-GMO, but in the end, it's still your family. It's your decision. Make the decision that's best for you, but make it informed. We'll take a break. Next hour, more fun, more interesting ideas to help you live longer, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, when you think of burnout, um, you know, sometimes you think of all these people that that uh, aren't motivated. They don't have a purpose in life. They... But when you listen to uh, Julia's numbers about the fact that burnout comes to the people that really tend to be most engaged, um, and then they they don't they don't take time for themselves, and I think a lot of us are we're so driven, we so live in this world where we need to get the right grades, we need to everything's pressure, and we want to be the best and. And we, we even feel compelled to be the best because, you know, God would want it that way. He'd want us to be our best self. But 
God doesn't want you to be burnt out. He doesn't want you to do more than you can do, does he? Is that how this works? Is No, no, you got to, no, sorry. Actually, he wants you just to be just a big mushy ball of nothing. That's how God works. Um, God wants you to be in tune and in a connection with him. So to me, what what maybe we need to figure out with each of our lives is how do we do some of this? For example, how do I stay uh, focused and connected to my purpose in life while simultaneously um, growing and and knowing who I am and um, stretching myself and, and pushing myself harder to do more and to be more? How do I do all of that and not get burnt out? It uh, it's I, I guess the key to some of this is going to be, um, I guess, at some point in our lives, knowing what matters to us, knowing what our yeses are, knowing what we need to do, what we need to work on, what we need to be. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of work. Uh, interesting, some research on happiness shows that 48% of Americans consider themselves happy, right? And um, which doesn't seem that, I mean, I guess that's high, but 33% of Americans say they're very happy with their jobs. By the way, the happiest careers happen to be clergy, firefighters, and reservation agents, which to me is what? But when you look at clergy and firefighters and, I guess, reservation agents, they're outwardly focused. They're serving others. They're helping people uh, take care of and, and do things. They're, they're, they're outwardly focused. They probably also—I um, know, for example, with firefighters, they spend only about 1% or 2% of their time actually fighting a fire. The other 98% of their time, they are probably preparing, working, exercising, anticipating— rejuvenating, getting healthy, you know, drilling, practicing, doing things like that. So I think each and every one of us could probably find a way to take better care of our lives if we maybe thought a little bit more like a clergy member who's always looking to the bigger picture of God or a firefighter who's always trying to prepare so that they can handle the fire. Some of us, though, don't have time to prepare for the fires because we're too busy fighting fires. And um, if you keep fighting the fires and never prepare for the fires, then eventually you'd eventually have, I'm betting, a lot of fires to handle, right? Maybe 60% of your time would actually be in fire fighting instead of fire prevention. So look at your own balance in your own life. What percentage of your day is actually spent in true recreation, where you actually are recreating yourself, your sense of, uh, you know, your sense of health? Your sleep, by the way, your restfulness, your mindfulness, your meditation. Do we have time for any of this? You know, some of us have got to work and then we work. And again, you're going to pay one way or another here. You're going to eventually have to pay. It's sad, but it's uh, it's it's going to have to happen. There's a great um, definition by Dr. Sean Acor, who wrote the book on happiness, um, the happiness advantage, the, the, the definition of happiness is the most accurate term for happiness is one that Aristotle used. It's eudaimonia, which translates not directly to happiness, but to human flourishing. 
So what if we blew up the idea that we as humans need to go for happiness, but instead we chose to just go for flourishing? Do you feel like at work you're flourishing or are you dying? Are you just, you know, imploding? And what can you do in your workplace to feel a more of a sense of flourishing? Probably would have to involve four or five areas at least. Physically, what can you do to stay on top of your game physically? Socially, how are your relationships at work? Emotionally, how do you feel about yourself in the work you're doing, your vision, your purpose, your passion? How do you feel about that? Uh, financially, is it cutting it for you? Is it is it paying off? Um, and um, professionally, are you being stretched? Are you growing? Are you developing? Are you being able to take this uh, this job to another level and be able to to truly be who you need to be? So that's just simply asking yourself physically, socially, emotionally, financially, um, and kind of I call it spiritually, are you connected to what you're doing in a way that it actually creates flourishing for yourself? And if it doesn't, hey, that's normal. That's normal, right? But the the dilemma is at some point normal might lead to burnout. Only 40 – in her research, only 40 – percent, 41 percent of the people she studied are engaged. Uh, according to the Gallup organization, it's uh, only 30 percent of the people that the Gallup organization studied are engaged. But of those that are engaged, she found that 20 percent of those are engaged to the point of burnout. So you can have too much of a good thing, right? And uh, we, we probably need to watch out for that. Some other things I've realized and learned just in my own life um, – is is to make sure that I actually am using the strengths that I bring to the table. Um, there's certain things I don't bring to my job that it's not me, it's not my gift, it's not my strength. And if I spend all day doing my job and then trying to get better at the things I'm not good at, um, instead of being able to magnify the top four or five, six things that I do bring to the game, then we might actually find ourselves burning out even faster. Instead of using a strength that would rejuvenate us and actually feel us, make us feel passionate about what we do, we, a lot of us in our jobs might be spending a lot of time making up for our, our errors, making up for the things we're not as good at. And I wonder if that just might be the selection of our job. Maybe we aren't in the right job if we have to spend so much time getting so much better at it that you know, we're almost running against the grain. I would love to see some research done on how people choose their jobs and if that impacts whether they are happy about it, whether they are feeling burnout. When I'm doing what I am uniquely qualified and gifted, not professionally skilled at because I've gone to school to learn it, but things that I am uniquely gifted at, I feel more passion than when I have to do things that I am not kind of inherently gifted at doing. And by the way, the same I found is true in my own parenting. It doesn't mean I won't need to learn stuff. I totally will. But there's also certain times in my parenting where I am actually using my God-given gifts, my God-given talents, and I bring those talents to that parenting moment, and it, it creates a complete new dynamic in my world with my children. 
right? I might not be the greatest at making dinner, so I'll go learn how to cook. But I will make dinner fun for everyone, okay? So we'll have a fun dinner because that's kind of my unique gift. And I guess I could improve my cooking. But I could spend hours and hours improving how I cook, and it won't necessarily make me that much happier. Or I could also spend hours and hours at making it more fun and dynamic and exciting and interesting, and that actually does make it seem like less work. So one of the rules I guess I'd give all of us is let's figure out what our unique strengths are and our gifts are. I've talked about it on the show many times. There's a wonderful website. Go to AuthenticHappiness.org, which is a, a it's Penn State University, and you can go on their website, AuthenticHappiness.org, take a test called the VIA test. It's the Character Strengths Test. And it will help you identify from number one to number 24 what your top 24 character strengths are. And hands down, I'm happiest when I'm living my top strengths, period. And by the way, my weakness, my weakest areas, I actually just use my strengths to mitigate those other areas that I'm not so good at. I use my creativity, my humor, my fun. My spirituality, I use my social intelligence as ways to mitigate the fact that uh, I don't have other strengths. And the research hands down shows that's what drives happiness. 93% of people that are happiest are happiest when they use their strengths 10 hours a week. And only one in four adults actually do so. So... It's worth looking into, folks. It's worth checking out. So go to AuthenticHappiness.org to, to get into that. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. I am, I've now decided we, we need more family time. We need to be together more as a family. It's amazing how and, – and I get it. Everyone's at a different stage of life and family where uh, you know it's not easy necessarily for everyone to get off work. Um, we had people coming and going all weekend – but it's also interesting to just – no matter what the age – my kids are all 12 and older. Uh, three of them are, are in high school and junior high and the rest are college students. But to have the college students around, it was way fun to just have them back. And to I noticed to just take some time to tell the stories and to tell the history and to recount the memories and to kind of just regroup. We we need we need to find ways to to do this, and I know it seems like there's a luxury of time, but one of the things I I really want to make sure that we understand is that uh, making time is is something we do every day, and it was easy I noticed for everyone in the family to just fall back and. You'd have this lull in conversation and interaction, and you look around the room and everyone would be on their phones, but. You can find time. You can make time. You can create a weekend. Um, even in the even in the most hectic examples, we uh, I had a uh, I have a brother in law that literally takes how many days? Maybe three days off a year because he just his business demands that you're always there. And um, so even to have him around was was pretty awesome too. There are moments, and so one of the, I guess, goals, the ideas I wanted to bring up during this Coach's Corner is to have us all look at our own lives, and are we making time to be a family? Are we making time to um, to turn off the equipment, to turn off the technology, to just spend some time together? 
And one of the things I might suggest, too, is that everybody right now go figure out when your kids are off school, when your kids are going to be home, when their summer vacation begins, and make sure you have found some time to take off. It might just be an, uh, you know, an extended weekend. It might be over one of the holidays, uh, a Labor Day or uh, whatever. It doesn't matter, but find a way to get a little more time with the people you love because in the end, um, having the time is one thing. Making the time is another. We've got to be able to to truly be intentional about our lives and intentional about our choices. Um, also intentional about um, our interaction. We went on some hikes. We played a lot of tennis. And I sat and I thought, man, even just even just the drive to go get a drink with your kids gives you an opportunity to influence them. You can't influence people that you're not around. You I mean you can you can text them and influence them that way, but then do it. And I just found that I again I've I've been the biggest offender of this, where it's so easy for me myself to just ignore the promptings, ignore the ideas that uh, I need to go do something special or do something different with my family. But please, please, please find everybody. Let's all find a way to give a little more, bit more effort to the family and not even just – it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be big vacations. It could just simply be, be more attentive. Uh, make sure you spend a little time, more time every day talking. Ask more questions. Listen more to what they're saying. Find out what each of your kids are going through. Um, some of my kids would be gone for two or three days of our weekend of our week um, away with friends having fun and I missed those kids why weren't they around I wanted them to be around and when they came around I was more attentive to make sure that I could hear their stories and know what's going on with them not to make any of us feel guilty but in the end it matters it truly does and time is no longer an excuse because you have time now you do we we just don't use it. We don't make it a priority because, you know, we've got to finish our latest game or I've got to try my next thing or, you know, go check out my Facebook feed. Be careful because uh, this time with your family, you're not getting it back. Fun stuff. Interesting. We're all here to learn, doing what we can to make life a little bit better by our strengths and uh, by our engagement. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, do you enjoy spending time watching Netflix? You prefer the great indoors instead of the great outdoors? Well, maybe that's just a sign that you're smarter than you think. By the way, a theory I've been uh, believing in my entire life, Dr. Todd McElroy conducted a study that suggested being lazy is a sign of high intelligence and we're excited to have him. Dr. McElroy, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Show. Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me on the show. You bet. Great to have you here. You, by the way, are a psychology professor at Florida Gulf Coast. And um, walk us through your study. This, uh, I, I mean, I, I know one of the caveats of your study is because it was a smaller group, we may not want to make major generalizations here. But talk to us. Is it true that uh, maybe the seeming a little more lazy is really a sign of higher intelligence? 
Well, it, that's certainly one interpretation that you could take from the study, but let me tell you what we did. Um, what we did was we got two groups of people. We selected them uh, from people who enjoy and like to think, those people who you know, really enjoy those deep cognitive efforts, and those people who don't like to think, and they're just really not into that cognitive thinking. And so we brought them into the lab, and we put a, these actigraph devices on their wrists, which measures their physical bodily movements. So it takes these, uh, has an internal gyro that takes these body movements about every 30 seconds. So this gives us a good measure of their physical activity. So we followed these two separate groups for uh, one week, brought them back into the lab, and got these measures of their uh, physical activity levels. And what we found is that those people who really enjoy cognitive effort, who really like to think, actually had much lower uh, physical activity levels than those people who do not like to think. Hmm. Wow. Is it, is it just that they just move less? Um or is it that they they are just less active overall in the day? Does that make well, that's sense? An interesting. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what we're doing is we're just simply measuring their gross physical activity level. You might think of how much you're actually doing, burning calories, and that sort of thing. How much your body's actually moving around, hmm. and that that's that's what we're looking at here. Did it? Uh, I guess. Is it, uh, and then you could attribute it to? Did you attribute it actually to IQ or just to their their love of thinking and their their you know their cognitions, their desire to be thinking? It, this is this is different than IQ, although it is correlated, but it's something different. It's this: we use a psychometric tool to measure this thing that we call enjoyment, or uh, people who really love to sing, people who who you know just get involved in it. You know, they they come up with this algebra problem, and you know they they enjoy working it out. And uh, those people we would say are high in need for cognition and. The, uh, the other group are those people who, you know, one of their worst nightmares is having to work through a problem, you know, and they just really do not enjoy it. <laughs> That's so interesting. Is it, um, I, and I guess this is just a natural thing. I mean, it almost, it just reminds me of high school again, where you you have the the real, the, the thinkers, the, the people that are, you know, um, the top of the class, uh, you know, the... I guess the valedictorian type that maybe isn't on the team. They're not on the teams. They're not as active socially. They're kind of in the library reading. Is it? Is this what we're learning? Is is that there's something about people that like to to get into their head and think that might be uh, that might separate their activity levels from those that simply just love to be busy. Yeah, exactly. And, you, you know, you can almost see it play out as this interchange between, you know, you can either spend your effort, your energy thinking, or you can spend your effort and your energy moving your physical body around. And so, you know, you're probably going to be doing one of the two. What What got you interested in this topic? <laughs> 
Well, actually, myself. <laughs> it sounds rather hedonistic, but but uh, what I was working with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. David Dickinson, on a on a very unrelated study looking at sleep. And and when we do sleep, we have people wear these actigraphy devices. And um, so we were just trying the devices out one day, and before we started running, you know, large groups of people because it's very expensive and laborious. So we were both trying them out and. I consider myself to be someone who, you know, exercises, and, you know, I'd say I was physically active, you know. I go to the gym like six days a week and, mm. you know, do the typical 45-minute thing, and, and so I, I, I basically, uh, you know, just watch myself for a week, come back in the lab, and I was really quite, I was really quite perplexed because I had very low physical activity levels. <laughs> And I was like, no, I, I'm, you know, I'm physically active. I go to the gym, I, you know, almost every day. And then what, it, what I came to notice is that I was just flatlined through most of the day. And then all of a sudden you'd see this big spike when I went to the gym. But uh, what I began to realize is that, you know, I'm a professor. I'm somebody who really enjoys, I mean, that's what I do. I love to think. Right. And I was like, you know, if you look... I'm only thinking about that one time in which I went to the gym. I'm not thinking about the other 98% of the day where I'm just sitting there thinking and working on a, you know, a formula or whatever I'm doing. And so from there, you know, I started thinking, well, maybe it's something about this people who enjoy and love to think aren't really as physically active as those who don't. And so from there went the study. We ran a pilot study, found very much, uh, what we found in this uh, larger study, and then we then ran the study that you see today. Do you sense that uh, – because I, I, some of my best thinking is when I'm exercising or on a walk or doing some physical activity, is is your activity, does it impact your ability to think? Um, you know, I think that depends upon – how you're thinking, and there's good research to show this. Uh, research, research looking at this has shown that whenever you're physically active or you're exercising or something like that, that can distract you. So you have your, you know, your conscious, thoughtful mind is, is distracted whenever you're exercising, and this sort of allows your unconscious to, you know, sort of interject more and mm. things like that. And so. It's a time of, you know, good time to be creative, I think, is a good way of saying it. Um, but also, you know, if you're at the gym or whatever, you've got a lot of distractions. And so if you're trying to think about some higher math problem or something that's really complex, then that's probably not a good time to be working on it. That's so true, isn't it? Is, um, as you, where do you sense that you're going to take the research now? Um, well, basically, we're, we are... Uh, working in two directions. Um, the follow-up to this study is to actually go out and look and see if what these people are doing in terms of physical activity. That is to say, these people who are low in need for cognition, who don't like to think, we, we don't know what they're doing. I mean, we know that, you know, physically, at a physiological basic level, they are, you know, more active, but we don't know what they're doing. So we're going to go look and see what they're actually doing, follow them over the course of a day or so and uh, see what they do. And same for the high thinkers, you know, what is it that they are doing or not doing? Yeah. yeah. I wonder, as I listen to it, it reminds me of learning styles, you know, multiple intelligence theories that um, there's some people that just like solo activities, some like more social, some need to be physiologically involved. 
and, and I wonder if how much of this is just about how we're using our intelligence. Yeah, it, certainly it could be. It's 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 almost you see this almost what we call it a compensatory model where you know you've got so much. Uh, to use, you know, and the question is, how do you use it? You know, do you apply it, you know, mentally or do you apply it more physically? You know, how are you using these different things? So you got a certain amount of energy, you know, how how do you apply it? Yeah, that's, I think, I, I guess that's that's the key is how, is how you apply it. One of the, the wonders I have is, I mean, this might make sense as to why certain people that need to be moving more, that need to like stay physically active, maybe they choose jobs that are, you know, less professorial, more let's get let's get out and get, you know, get out and maybe do more manual labor, more blue collar jobs. Yeah, good point. And that's that's, you know, one thing that we really hope that this article hits home on is awareness. You know, it, you you may be like me thinking the, you know, hey, I'm physically active, but in reality I, I am a thinker, you know, I sit on my butt in a desk, you know, thinking most of the time and I, you know, that simple awareness has really kicked in with me. I'll get up and walk or get up and move and do something more now. So it's really the hmm. awareness, you know. Yeah, I mean, that. I guess if you are a thinker, you, you still need to be active. So you might need to more consciously go after creating activity. Um, and, you know, maybe there's also times in, you know, somebody whose job is maybe more out servicing equipment or whatever, maybe they constantly are active. They might also need some downtime to make sure that they're thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It's, uh, you know, it is a trade-off, you know, it's between, you know, how you're applying your energy or you, you know, if you're physically laborious all the time, maybe you should take some time out and just, you know, give yourself some thoughtful experience and, and same holds true for someone who's thinking all the time. Maybe they should take some time out and, you know, give physical activity a chance. Mm. One of the things you found in your study, too, is that on weekends, both groups were more sedentary. What was that about? Yeah, that that's that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this. What we found is that on Saturday, they came they were almost the same, and by Sunday, they both groups were pretty much the same. That's another thing that we're going to examine in our follow-up study. We didn't know what to attribute this to. There, there are two, well, seemingly only two possibilities. One is that, you know, the the weekend is just the time in which everyone sort of recoups and rests, and so you're going to have, you know, just this sort of baseline of physical activity, and everybody's pretty much the same. The other more interesting uh, hypothesis that we're looking into is that, you know, people are matched up quite often with people of different uh, loves for thinking. So, you know, you get together with the person that you're with, and maybe they don't like to think, but you like to think. And it really doesn't matter because you're both together, so you're both kind of being at the same physical activity level. So people are, yeah, people are engaged, engaged with other people more on the weekends, so they tend to, you know, do whatever the other person's doing. So that's the more interesting hypothesis. Yeah, you kind of normalize, I guess, your each other's behavior, so you create an average. Yeah, exactly. You're sort of canceling out any of the effects. Interesting stuff. Is it um, – because, see, sometimes it seems like in marriages and relationships, you have one person that's the thinker and the other person that's kind of the doer. 
and ones that <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. And it's like so in a way, I guess you do balance it out, but you also cause a lot of divorces. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll I'll go ahead and preface that by saying that I'm definitely the doer, and so my my wife, who may be listening, will know that you know she is definitely the thinker. So, is she? Um, <laughs> That's smart. Smart. So, um, Keep it that way. Do, exactly. do you worry? Do you worry in the research that uh, we might? I mean, like I love the idea that watching Netflix may just make me intelligent. Um, <laughs> that's how I like to look at the data. But is it? I mean, do you worry that we might be labeling them in the end, or, um, or, or just that we might be sending a message that maybe if you're a thinker, you don't need to be as active. Yeah, I, I do think that there is a, a message to this that can definitely misconstrue what's going on. Uh, there's, we have no evidence to suggest that you know being lazy will make you more intelligent. That that's <laughs> implying causation that you know right. definitely not there in this study. Um, these need for cognition things are robust. They're pretty much solid throughout a person's life. And so I guess the real take-home message is, you know, just simply awareness. And uh, it's worked for some of us in the lab, is just simply being aware that, you know, gosh, you think you're physically active, but if you just are mindful, what you'll see is you're doing a lot of time sitting around and not moving, you know, because you are thinking. And yeah. that's, that's really sort of what we hope to relay. That's great. Great insight. Well, Dr. Todd McElroy, thank you so much for your research and your time uh, with us today. We appreciate it. We will take a break, folks. Again, it's not, it's not an excuse for you, but some people have a different need to think and uh, others to be active. And so just be aware. Awareness 101. That's the beginning. We'll take a break. When we come back, do a little Coach's Corner for you. Plus, Leanna Tan will be uh, addressing fantasy sports in one of her little tantrums. Well, tangents, I tangents. guess we're going to call it. Uh, sometimes we call them tantrums around the office. Anyway, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Well, with the kids going back to school, it's time to see if we can restart their brains again. Have you ever wondered, uh, as you ask your child a question, so, Timmy, how did school go? I don't know. What? What do you think of this? Mm-hmm. Use your words, Timmy. Sometimes we wonder about our children and do they actually know how to think for themselves? Do they know how to get their brains engaged? And I wonder, too, if sometimes it's our parenting that might be impeding our child's ability to do their own thinking. Because if Timmy doesn't know, we'll quickly give him the answer so we can move on to the next assignment. And as we talk about uh, earlier, we were talking about the fact that Maybe it seems like that somebody's being lazy, but they really might be thinking. And it might be also, too, that sometimes your children are thinking. They're just not processing. They're not processing as quickly as you would like them to. So then you jump in and answer the question for them, and then they quickly learn, eh, I guess I don't need to actually think because my mom or dad will do it for me. So I wanted to put together some lessons for all of us about how we can help jumpstart our child's learning and make sure that they get into a, a lifelong learning process 
and and understand that life is about learning, kids. So here's some tips for you as parents. Um, rule number one, identify your child's learning style. I mentioned it in the earlier inter- interview that every one of us, uh, according to research on learning styles, has a different way in which we like to learn, we like to access knowledge and information. Some of us are verbal learners. We prefer using words. Uh, both in speech and writing. The verbal uh, might also want to listen and hear. Um, you know, I, I love, I'm probably a verbal learner. I like, I learn by speaking, by teaching. I learn by listening. And so that helps me. Some are visual learners. They prefer using pictures, images, spatial understanding. A visual person would be the child that knows exactly where they can put that their nightstand and it fits perfectly into this one little nook. They're just so visual. Some of us are physical learners. We prefer by using our body, our hands, our sense of touch. Some of us are logic. We need logic. We need reasoning. We need systems. Those might be the kids that are regularly asking you why. Why do we do it that way, Dad? Why? Why that way? Uh, Some are social learners. They prefer to learn in groups with other people. Some are solitary learners. They prefer to work alone. If you want to understand how to help your child become a lifelong learner, then pay attention to the way in which they learn. It might be different than the way you learn, and it might be one of the reasons why you struggle with one child over another child, maybe why you're not able to impact that child as much. If they're a visual person, if they're a verbal person, if they are a physical person, you need to learn it. You need to understand that. Would they rather learn in groups or by themselves? If you have a child that is a solitary learner, they may be fine sitting there all day by themselves reading a book well, you really need to get out and socialize. Sure, okay. Except it may not maximize their learning. So identify their style and uh, work with them. Talk to them. Teach them a little bit more about it. If your one spouse is better at uh, logical than you are, then let that logical spouse try to teach and coach and mentor their child um, into that approach. Another tool you can use to get your children owning their own learning is to let them answer questions themselves. When a child asks a question, answer the question with a question. Now, you remember how bad that used to be. (laughs) Mom, what's four times four? I don't know, Timmy. What do you think four times four is? But answering a question with a question, it could be something as simple as interesting. That's a wow. That's a really great question. Now, before I give you my ideas, help me understand what got you to this point. Where where have you already thought this through? And try to figure out more what they what they have talked about, what they are working on in their head. Don't just assume they're blindly coming at it, even though many times they might be. Instead, help them teach you what they already know. And if you put the onus on them, you will probably notice that they're going to think a lot of it through before you come back with the question. Be careful, though. You don't want to drive your child away simply by always asking a question to make them answer but really show sincere intent that I want, to, I want to think how you're thinking. I want to see where your brain has gone as you've tried to figure this problem out yourself. What have you already thought through? Another powerful tool I've learned with my kids is to teach the art of brainstorming. Um, there really could be 50 answers, right, to any one question. Most of us know one, maybe two answers to the question. Um, But if you could sit down and teach your child to brainstorm through and come up with multiple solutions 
it's a pretty powerful thing. Let's say your child came to you and they're frustrated because they, they can't make their bed in the morning. They just can't remember to do it. They don't do it. They don't remember it. They don't like it. Great. Instead of just telling them to do it, you might want to sit down with them and say, let's brainstorm some ways that we can get this bed made. Okay. And just come up with some ways. For example, one way is that we could just all agree that we're never going to make the bed again. Right. And the child will be like, perfect. Or another idea is we could just have mom do it every morning. Okay, we're just brainstorming. We're not going to take any of these, but that's another option. Another thing you could do is take your allowance and pay your brother to make your bed. They, he seems to do a good job, and he likes money. Maybe what we could do is get rid of all of your sheets on your bed so you're just sleeping on a mattress. That way you don't have to make it. Okay. Or we have to – maybe we shouldn't – we should just make it once and just sleep on top of it. Just sleep on top of the bed. And just start showing your child there's a million ways – that we can deal with this solution, this problem. Let's just not sleep. Maybe what we could do is not sleep. Maybe what you could do, Timmy, is sleep in the bathtub instead of in the bed. Maybe you could sleep in a sleeping bag. Maybe you could just get up and make your bed every morning. Maybe you could sleep with just a comforter on top, not a sheet. So it's just a comforter. You just got to throw the comforter back up. There are a hundred answers, and some of them matter, some of them don't, but allow every idea in because as we do, guess what's going to happen? It's going to allow us to stretch our child's brain, and we're going to show them that as a team, we can come up with some solution. And then out of the brainstorm, let them find one or two ways that that work for them. Another thing you could do that would really help your kids start uh, to share and, and know that they have to think is ask for their opinion. You know, if you pull up to a situation and you're at the Home Depot store and you're about to purchase something and you don't know how you're going to get the lawnmower home, you might want to ask your child's opinion. Holy cow, Timmy, we got to get this lawnmower home. What do you think we should do? And let the child start to help you figure out solutions instead of just playing on their phone or waiting for you to hurry. Let them become part of the solution with you by simply asking for their opinion. At first, they won't know what you're doing. They're going to think you're trying to trick them, but in the end, it's going to help. Another tool is give them opportunities to teach. One of the best ways you can have somebody uh, basically forced into learning is the fact that they got to teach. That's what they do in med school. The model is see one, do one, teach one. Every med student's going to see it being done. They're going to do it do the activity, and they're going to then teach another person how to do it. Instead of you answering all of your children's questions on their homework assignment, maybe choose another child from the family to come over and help tutor, to help teach the child that math process that this child may have learned a few years earlier. Let your children teach more. When they come home, ask them to teach one thing that they learned at school today. And last but not least, make it a point to your children that they need to learn to learn their way out of problems. Life, there we have never had more information at our fingertips than right now. And if I could understand that, okay, we've got a problem, we've got to learn a way to get and handle this problem, and we're going to have to figure out the solution. Um, whatever the problem is, we can always learn it. We've got Google. We've got YouTube. We've got TED.com. We've got Wikipedia. We have a lot of sites, a lot of resources that our children could turn to to help them find solutions. If you don't know how to take your baseboards off at your home, then let's take our child and let's go figure it out with them. 
And let's start teaching our children that learning is something that will never go away. It is something that's going to be permanent, and hopefully um, it's going to give them a huge advantage in life. Think about the child that knows how to learn and has confidence in learning. Then they can pretty much handle any issue. So there's some tools, some tricks from the coach's corner on how to uh, help your children love thinking for themselves. We'll take a break. Come back, folks. Continuing the discussion. We like to have Leanna go dive into the deeper issues of life. And one of the things we wanted to focus on because it's so popular is this fantasy football. How many times do you see fantasy football taking the, over the lives of so many people? So here's Leanna Tan taking an in-depth look at fantasy football. I spent the weekend sitting in front of a jumbo TV, eating nacho dip and barbecue, strutting my college gear, and cheering with my friends. Football season has begun, and with it comes a lot of fanatics. I overheard my coworkers talking about fantasy sports. Are you crazy? And I thought they might be going insane. All the ponies in this town are crazy! My idea of fantasy sports includes wizards, dragons, and sorcery. Come on, how bad can it be? My first thought was, maybe my co-workers are more into reenacting Quidditch games than they are into watching actual games. Oh, no, 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 no. My second thought was, maybe they're so obsessed with watching sports that they start hallucinating sporting events when their Wi-Fi streaming goes down or cable gets cut. That's so not true. In my concern for my co-workers' mental well-being, I decided to dig a little deeper and figure out what exactly fantasy sports actually are. It's like faux football, by the way. Fake. Well, I know nothing about fantasy sports or what it is, so I found a guru in all things fantasy sport, David Boyle. And just, you know, so we have your credentials. Have you ever won? Uh, last year, I actually won both the leagues that I was in, and I won $300 in doing so. From where? It was $50 to enter the league, so we each put in $50, and then first place got $300. And that's why we're interviewing you. This is fantastic. I know. Let's I'm do impressed. It. Come on. So, David, what are fantasy sports? It's keeping track of statistics of individual players and then applying those individual players to a made-up or fantasy team, and then those points go towards uh, other matchups against other teams. I'm not going to lie. If you just made all that up, that was some really good improv. So this has nothing to do with unicorns or wizards? No. That's so funny, I forgot to laugh! Do you ever dress up or anything for these games? Fantasy? Never, never, never! Uh, I wear a jersey, you know, so... That could be part of the fantasy that I'm like a part of the, yeah, that I'm a player. Okay. I think that's a lot of why it's so popular. All these middle-aged men, they want to be like GMs or like owners of a team. And this is as close as they'll get. Back in 82, I used to be able to throw a pigskin quarter mile. Mm, That sounds like a sad life, but um, I mean, to each his own. How much of your time does this consume? Embarrassingly a lot. I probably spend like four hours during the week just like researching, reading articles, like looking stuff up. Oh, I've wasted my life. Do you ever think like, man, I could be doing community service. I could be 
changing the world right now, but I'm playing fantasy sports. Uh, you know, that does cross my mind from time to time, but, you know, fantasy is magic, and if I can become magical, then I can change the world. So that's my number one focus right now. Don't think this changes anything. And what, what kind of prizes do they offer? Bragging rights amongst your friends, which is important. Watch out, because next year I'm going to be the one making fun of you. Didn't you say you were embarrassed to be on this segment? No, I just said I didn't want you to use my name. <laughs> David Boyle. We have David <laughs> Boyle here. We've got Dodson here. Nobody cares. What advice do you have for people that want to do fantasy sports and how can they win? Uh, my advice to people that want to do fantasy sports is A, to find another hobby. That's a really good idea. But B, I would say a, a really important part of fantasy sports, this is probably the most important part, is coming up with a name for your team. What's your name, dude? A lot of people, they do uh, puns based on like player names. So my team name is Memoirs of Marshawn, after Marshawn Lynch, who is a former football player now. There's another, it's Remember uh, Harambe. What kind of stupid name is that? Who's not a football player. He's a former gorilla. gorilla. God rest his soul. What should I call my fantasy sport team? So there's a running back for the Kansas City Chiefs named Jamal. And since I know you're such a big fan of Pokemon, you should be Gotta Catch Jamal. Oh, that's a good one. Can you put tan in there? Tan? Let me think. First and tan? Because, like, first and ten? Wrong. Well, there you have it. You know, I was actually slightly disappointed. I thought it would have been highly entertaining to picture my coworkers playing sports in capes and wands. I know, it's gonna be so awesome! My little pony, my little pony, my little pony tail. Not quite as epic as I thought it would be, but... Hey, a quick way to burn through 50 bucks and a great coping mechanism this football season when your favorite team doesn't win. I am not spending the rest of my life with a loser. I wish you all the best of luck. Happy fantasizing. Well, I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. My little pony, my little pony, my little pony tail. My little pony. <laughs>